morning everybody and morning to those at the sanctuary as well. Uh, today I want to look at a familiar parable, maybe familiar to most of us, perhaps misinterpreted by many. A parable commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And just so everybody is clear, the word prodigal means extravagantly generous, lavishly generous. And here's a story in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. I'm going to read it out in the English Standard Version, the ESV. And what's going on here is that the Pharisees are complaining that Jesus is supposed to be a respectable teacher, a dignified prophet, and yet he's eating and meeting with the sinners. So to answer them, Jesus tells them the parable of the, the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now in the third parable in the series, he tells them the story of the lost son. And this is Jesus speaking. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pots that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Come, let us pray. Father, as we look to your word now, speak to us. Give us all wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let me start by first pointing out some important aspects of the story. First, the younger son demanded his inheritance. He demanded the father divide everything up. And because he is the younger son, his share would be one third, according to the ancient custom. The elder son will get two shares, which is, in this case, two thirds. Now I want to ask you, how would you feel if your child came up to you and asked for one third of your property? Let me give you an example from the 20th century. In the 1930s, Frank Mars had a company that made Snickers and Milky Way chocolate bars. And one day, his son Forrest came up to him and demanded a share of the business because Forrest wanted to expand the business abroad. What did Frank Mars do? Did he divide up his business? No. Frank got so angry, he threw his son out. Forrest left America and went over to Switzerland to learn how to make chocolate with Nestle Company. Later on, Forrest moved to England and he started his own company, making Mars bars and M&M's. But Frank never forgave his son. In Frank's will, he left nothing to his son Forrest. He gave the company to his wife Ethel instead. Frank Mars refused to divide his property for his son. How about in Jesus' time? According to my favorite theologian, N.T. Wright, Nicholas Thomas Wright, his comments on this story were most helpful to me. In the Middle Eastern context of this parable, now scholars know of only two ancient examples which have been recorded of sons asking their fathers for their inheritance. Both instances ended in death. In the first case, the father was so shocked, he had a heart attack and died. In the second case, the father was so angry, he beat his son to death. Why? Because for the younger son to ask for his share of the inheritance was unthinkable then. It is the equivalent of saying to the father, I wish you were dead. Because the property is only divided when the father is dead. So in Jesus' story, the father should have beaten the son or thrown him out. Instead, the father agrees to the son's request. Jesus' audience would have been thoroughly shocked. In this story, the father divided up his property between his two sons. In other words, he has nothing left. He gave the younger son one third and he gave the rest to the elder son. Because you know, you can't give to one son without giving to the other. The father is left with nothing. The younger son, of course, squandered his share and ended up doing the job so far low it was nearly impossible 
to go lower for a Jew, feeding pigs for a Gentile master. And remember, the Jewish food laws are the same as the Muslim food laws. Pigs are not kosher to Jews, just like they are not halal to Muslims. But the younger son managed to sink even further in disgrace because he had the nerve to return home. At least if he were far away, the family could spin some story about him. But when he comes back, broke and broken, he threatened to disgrace the whole family in front of the village. When we read that the son came to himself, it doesn't mean necessarily repentance. It means the son had an idea. And this is what went through the son's mind. Instead of thinking, I've hurt my father, I've wasted his property, and now I will go back and see what I can do to make him feel better, to earn back some property. No, the son thinks instead, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger. So this is a thought prompted not by regret, not by regret for a wasteful life, prompted not by love for a father, but motivated simply by hunger. And so the son devised a speech, calculated carefully to win back his father, and he goes home. And he writes this, that Jesus' audience would have been utterly shocked by what the father did next. What did the father do next? The father saw the son approaching from far off and he ran to greet his useless son. In the Middle East, as in parts of Asia, senior members of the family, heads of households, do not run because it is not dignified. And they certainly do not run to greet someone like the younger son. But the father runs out to meet his son. And what does the son say now that the father has welcomed him back? Does the son say thank you? In this story, the son never says thank you. The son launched into his prepared speech. And even as the son tried to deliver his memorized speech, you see his thoughts and the words in the speech are the same. But before he can finish, the father called for the best robe a ring, shoes, and a fatted calf. Now there are many questions people have asked about this uh, story. Is the younger son really repentant? Why didn't he seek out his elder brother who is not at the party? Why didn't he stay close with the father and go and talk to the elder brother when the brother arrived? All we know is that the younger son went to the party where he no doubt enjoyed himself. Now the elder son knew nothing about the party because he has to ask about it. Maybe the father was so excited he forgot to tell the elder son. Maybe the elder son was out in the fields working all day and he has to ask a servant to find out what is going on. Then he finds out his brother had come home, the father had killed the fatted calf. Notice that the servant does not mention the ring and the robe and the shoes. Why? Whose fatted calf is that? Whose ring and robe and shoes? They are the elder brothers because the father had divided up the property. 
And so in the last part of the story, the father and the elder son remain outside arguing. As with most parables of Jesus, there is no ending. Jesus' parables are cliffhangers. Without endings, there are many possibilities. I have read six different possible endings by Douglas Adams at the Pacific School of Religion at Berkeley in California. In the first ending, the father returns to the party, the elder son lingers outside. Later, when most of the guests are gone, the younger son staggers out drunkenly, and the elder son leaps from the shadows, strikes his brother dead. In the second ending, the elder son relents, he goes into the party of the father. But when he greets his younger brother, he sees the family ring on his finger, and in a rage, he cuts off his brother's hand and has his father committed into a mental hospital as being senile for giving away property not his own. In the third ending, the younger son runs away with the ring, the best robe, and other property, and after losing it all, comes home again. He repeats this pattern over and over again, and is still living with his parents at age 50. And still another ending, the elder son comes into the party, the brothers are reconciled. In another ending, the brothers continue to live at home, but are unreconciled. And in the sixth ending, the father gets sick of both sons. He claims back what is left of the property. He goes off to try his luck at Las Vegas. Most people focus on the welcome home as the great sign of the father's love. Are we looking at the right thing? There's a story of a husband whose wife had a baby. Husband's always too busy at work to return home and help care for the baby. He's out, you know, just making money. But one night he comes back early. The baby is ready asleep. So the father stands and looks down at the baby in the crib. The wife walks by outside, sees the father inside. She's just so happy that the father is the husband is finally taking interest in the baby. And she goes up and hugs the husband. And husband whispers in wonder, how could anybody produce such a beautiful crib for only $28.95? Are we looking at the right thing? The baby or the crib? Because this story is not about the younger son. The younger son is not prodigal. Prodigal, as I said, means extravagantly generous. The son is a fool. But the real thrust of the story is on the love of the father. The father is the real prodigal. The one who is really generous with his property and his love. So what is this parable really about? Anyone in Jesus' audience listening to him would have realized that this parable is about the story of Israel. It echoes the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is all about exile and restoration. You remember that Israel was conquered by Assyria and Babylon 2,500 years ago. The Israelites were taken off as slaves to faraway lands. And when the Babylonian Empire finally fell to the Persians, the Persians allowed the Israelites to return home from exile. But in Jesus' day, many if not most Jews, 
regarded their exile as still continuing. The people had certainly returned home to the promised land. But the great restoration prophecies of the Old Testament had not yet come true. Israel had not been restored as a nation. And so the Israelites felt that they were still in exile. First, the Greeks occupied Israel. And then in Jesus' day, the Greeks were replaced by the Romans. There was a Roman occupation army in Jerusalem. And Israel, all Israel, was ruled by a brutal Roman governor. Yes, the Israelites had a wonderful temple in Jerusalem. But before the exile, you could tell when God was in the Holy of Holies. Because His presence, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the temple like smoke. Now in Jesus' time, after the exile, that presence was no longer there. God had come down as a man, but no one recognized Him yet. And so the Israelites thought that God had not returned to His temple. They saw Israel as still being oppressed by foreigners. And people were still waiting for God's redemption. They thought they were still in spiritual exile. However, the early Christians were behaving as though God had come. Not just that God had returned to the temple, but that the people had returned from exile. Why? Because Jesus' presence meant that our spiritual exile is over. Jesus welcomed everyone, giving forgiveness and restoration. God gave a new covenant, a new testament, that there was to be a new Israel, made up of those who believed in Jesus. And so what this whole story is saying, is that Israel could sin, and sin so badly to end up feeding pigs, for a pagan master. But God did not stop loving His people. And when God's people, all of God's people, decide to return home, there is a surprisingly generous, prodigal welcome waiting for all of us. And Jesus acted out this welcome. His eating with sinners, His celebration meals, even on the Sabbath, they are like the Father's celebration party in this story. God celebrates the return of His people. And when Jesus welcomes sinners, when He gathers up people in the new Israel, it is God doing it, welcoming us into eternal life as long as we accept the welcome of Jesus. In Jesus' entire ministry then, we see God entering Jerusalem, returning to His temple, and removing the veil separating God and His people. If you want to read more about this, N.T. Wright has a book called Jesus and the Victory of God, published 20 years ago. It is only 760 pages, volume 1. What can we take away from this story? I think this story asks us to play a role in God's new covenant. What role is this? Are we to be like the younger son or the elder son? No. The call of the entire New Testament 
is for us to be like the Father. We are to be like our Father. And so like the Father in this story, and our Father in heaven, I think we are to do two things. Firstly, forgive generously as the Father forgives. And secondly, be gracious as the Father is gracious. Forgive generously as the Father forgives. Ernest Hemingway, in his book, Capital of the World, he writes of life in Spain before World War II. And he tells the story of a young man named Paco, which is a very common Spanish name. And Paco fell out with his father and left home. And after a while, Paco's father put a short notice in the Madrid Daily newspaper, which read very simply, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the steps to this newspaper office at noon on Friday, your loving father. And Ernest Hemingway wrote that when the father turned up at the newspaper office on Friday, there were 600 men named Paco waiting for him. People need forgiveness. And there are many broken relationships. But more than that, we need to forgive. Now I had this terrible woman where I worked years ago who made life hell for me. I used to dream of ways to get revenge. My wife said not to say that, but it's true. Then I realized it made no difference to her whether I forgave her or not, but it was eating me up inside. As the Americans say, she got to live in my head rent-free. I had to learn to forgive. I have to learn to let go of my anger and bitterness and move on. Forgive all generously. And do we not pray this when we ask God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? Secondly, we are to be gracious as God is gracious. There's this story of a husband and a wife who couldn't get along. And they were always arguing. And so one day, they decided to try something uh, the wife suggested. Every day, they would write down one thing about the other that irritated them and put it in a box. And after one month, they would exchange boxes and then try to change. One month later, they sat down at the table, they exchanged boxes. The husband opened his box. He took out the slips of paper from his wife. He learned that he never put down a toilet seat after using the toilet. He threw his clothes all over the place. He never washed up the dishes. He mixed the whites with the colored in the washing machine. The husband noted everything, resolved to be better. Then the wife opened her box and found that the husband had written the same thing on every slip of paper. Each slip of paper the wife read said, I love you. When I read this story out to my wife, she asked, why can't it be the other way? I said, this is more like real life, right? It's okay, my wife is not here today. But we are to be gracious as our Father is gracious. He has welcomed all because He loves all. And how can we not do the same? But we are not always gracious. Even in church. I was speaking to this pastor, not from this church, about his recent church anniversary. So you, you know it's not from this church. But this pastor said, 
that when the church cleaners went to help themselves at the lunch buffet, some church members stopped them and told them, no, this is not for you, it's only for us. Pastors scolded the church from the pulpit. And then there was another church of another buffet, a different church again. But after the members had taken their food, one man went up to the Filipino woman, assuming that they were all domestic helpers, and said, now you can eat. Now we sing in Christ that there is no east or west, but we still have these divisions. I know we are different in Amokyo. I hope we are gracious to all in church as well as outside of church. Because God calls us to love all. We are all sinners. And we are all still welcome to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you do not act out God's gracious and generous welcome, who is going to do it? God gives us grace to love all, even those who hate us. So this week, I would like you to think of one person who has wronged you. And forgive that person without that person having to ask. In today's parable, the son neither asks for forgiveness nor says thank you. But the father lavishes him with love and forgiveness. Be like the father. Also, I would like you to practice graciousness and welcome one person to this church. Either greet a newcomer and make that person feel welcome and part of a family or bring someone to church yourself or do something that is overly gracious. Forgive generously as our Father forgives. Be gracious as our Father is gracious. We are to be like our Father. I know it's not easy, because if it were easy, everybody would be a Mother Teresa. But we can try. Because no matter how difficult it is to be forgiving and gracious, those who are the children of God are still called to be like our forgiving and gracious Father. Will you praise me, please? Father, we thank you for your love in our lives, for your forgiving us, for your grace to us. We ask you, Lord, let this forgiveness and grace flow from us to all around us, that people may see we truly are your children. Use us then, wherever we may be, to spread your love. In Jesus' name, Amen.